Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rasala. Today is a, it's a good conversation, but it's a tough conversation. I hope you'll stick around for it. A lot of new information here. A lot of uh, really horrible, terrible places to go. But such is the world today, I suppose. Talia Levin is my guest today. Talia is a freelance writer. She's been in The New Yorker, New Republic, Washington Post, Village Voice. She has a new book out called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. And she basically does the homework that none of us want to do of monitoring and infiltrating white supremacy groups online. If you're like me, you operate on, you know, mainstream platforms like Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and, you know, whatever, Facebook, YouTube. But there is a whole world out there of people on the far right that have been shunned from these kind of mainstream channels of communication and have these complete other experiences on the Internet that most of us kind of normal people aren't aware are conversations that are happening every day. A lot of them are private groups, and Talia was able to kind of catfish her way into a lot of these conversations, posing as other people, and uh, really unmask exactly what's going on, just how pervasive this movement is, when it's led to violence, and sort of what the members of all these groups are thinking. So it's an incredible book, Culture Warlords. I highly recommend it. It was one of those books that I read from cover to cover. And I had lots and lots of questions about. It's a new world for me. So Talia really dove into it deep with me, which I appreciated. And there's a lot we didn't get to ask. There's a lot we didn't get to talk about. But the book goes back to, you know, early forms of of anti-Semitism going all the way back to the Black Death, going up through Henry Ford. I'd heard, you know, just sort of in passing, oh, yeah, Henry Ford was an anti-Semite. But she really brings the evidence that, you know, he owned a publisher that was publishing anti-Semitic propaganda. It was being distributed at Ford dealerships. I mean, imagine this is like in the 1930s and stuff, going and and buying your Model T and getting a pamphlet about, you know, how Jewish people were the end of the world, things like that. I mean, this was prominent in our country and not that long ago. And she points out that Henry Ford even helped influence some of Hitler's thinking. So there you go. You know, I think it's, and Talia will make the case for it today, that it's important that we not look away from all of this violence, from all this rhetoric, and not just think of these as, you know, people hanging out in their parents' basement or, you know, something like that. These are real threats to our world, to our neighbors, to our way of life here in America. And uh, kudos to Talia for rooting them out and calling them out and shining a light on all this. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's probably new territory for a lot of you. And, you know, I'm sorry if we go too fast or don't define every vocabulary word, but that's what the book's there for. So honestly, it's a great read and I think a necessary read in these times. And as we talk about, this isn't something that started with Donald Trump, clearly, and it's not something that's going to end with him. And it's just a question of regardless of what happens, you know, in the next week and a half here, how are we going to confront this? How are we going to make sure that these white power 
ideas aren't given a place to flourish. So it's on all of us to think about. I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll check it out. It's an interesting book. It's a great read. Here it is, my conversation with Talia Lavin. Well, I want to start with just sort of asking, you know, the basic open-ended question. Uh, how has your quarantine been this last, you know, six, seven months? I'm glad that I've spent a lot of it with family. I don't do particularly well in solitude. Like, right. I don't I'm know not, who does. It's tough. Some people, I think, are much more comfortable spending time with themselves. I am just, I just suck at it. So I'm like, you know, I'm spending as much time with family as I can. And uh, thankfully, I have a pretty, pretty tight knit family that's, you know, that we we don't mind spending time with each other. So that's been the highlight of it. That and cooking a lot at home. Nice. What What are some of your favorite things to make? Well, we're entering soup season. And I, I, I mean, I, I like to make chicken soup with like a double stock, you know, that I let simmer all night. I make borscht. I make avgo the mono soup is a favorite of mine. So, um, and then all summer I was making gazpacho. So nice. yeah, big, big soup, soup person. Yeah, that's, I, I've done a couple of just basic, you know, like, as you say, sort of making chicken stock and then throwing in like whatever kind of vegetables we have lying around, you know, carrots or celery or whatever, and just kind of making a basic chicken uh, soup. But that sounds awesome. Just, you know, the uh, the cold stuff in the summer and now the hot stuff going into the winter. Yeah, I'm a big fan of like soup all year round. I don't, I'm, but you know, the desire to have soup definitely ticks up sharply in the falls i'm thinking of making like a ginger chicken kind of deal nice i just i i I order from this thing called imperfect foods oh i've um, heard of that yeah it's it's like the kind of damaged they're they're not the most beautiful foods but they're still edible like fruits and vegetables and that kind of stuff right yeah and like whatever um surplus product so it's kind of whatever comes in the basket determines what i what i cook but I've asked them to send me beets every week so I can make roasted beets and and goat cheese, that kind of thing. I don't know. It it never went out of style for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, so, uh, you know, as I was going through the book, uh, I know there were a lot of uh, kind of current references. You talk about coronavirus and, you know, some of the some of the events of at least sort of the late spring. I guess, like, where were you in the writing process during this time? Had you, had you mostly finished the book going into quarantine or were you able to kind of hunker down and, you know, work on it uh, just without distraction during this time? So I, uh, I like turned in the first finished draft or like, you know, the first rough draft or whatever in December. And then in like May, I was doing the sort of, okay, like these are the last edits you can make. And by then, you know, we were in Corona world right? and I was like, hold up, you know, and like it's like you know you're writing a book about current events and you don't want it to be totally overtaken and so i was able to accommodate like some of the sort of beginning of the reopen protests but um i sort of had to put the last final touches on it by june but the the bulk of the book was written in in 2019 you know and then certainly the bulk of the reporting was was done in 2019 as well yeah I'm really curious, like, I, I was fascinated by the book, but it was it was a world that I just 
knew nothing about and sort of, you know, the, the most I had really even heard of was kind of, you know, I'd heard of like 4chan and 8chan, but had never like ventured down that rabbit hole. What was it for you that made you want to write about this topic to to take such a deep dive into white supremacy? Well, I just want to say your brain must be so admirably unpolluted. Like you must <laughs> I mean, you know, I watch the news and stuff, but I'm not like I'm not, you know, going on to, you know, right wing forums or anything online. Well, yeah, it's not like I'm doing it for for pleasure or edification. Right. <laughs> like, I'm not like, you know, checking out like, you know, Joey's Holocaust board for like fun. But what made me decide to like delve into this rabbit hole of horror? <laughs> well, I mean, the answer was basically that like they came to me first. I kind of, I wrote like one article after Unite the Right in Charlottesville, you know, that, that horrible thing about sure. um, one of the more infamous neo-Nazi websites, the Daily Stormer, and kind of their difficulty finding a web host, which has since resolved. But, um, you know, then they started writing about me and I basically got on the far right's radar. And then subsequently when like, I, you know, I had like a, an incident at work that that kind of exploded onto the right wing media sphere that really um, is that was like a there's an article in The Nation about it um, more like most recently Immigrations and Customs Enforcement basically put like a public spotlight on me over a, a tweet that I wrote um, a couple of years ago. Uh -huh. And so like from that point, the far right really had me on their sort of list of regular antagonists. And I, you know, kind of returned fire. I wasn't, like, ready to just lie down and, you know, run away and, and let, like, Nazis kind of have their, their say while I shrink like a violet. But, you know, when you've had, you know, ethnic slurs and, you know, all kinds of invective hurled at you for years, I mean, for me, I I was like, you know, okay, the abyss is gazing at me. And it's very nasty and I don't like it. And um, rather than sort of turn away or shrink or kind of mm, like fall out of the public sphere entirely, I'm going to double down and I'm going to look back at them uh, and sort of drag them by the hair into the light. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's brave of you. I, I don't know that I <laughs> could have gone there and and in the same way sort of you know, you talk about sort of my my naivete around this or something like, you know, my impulse and you write about this in the book, too, that I think a lot of people's impulse is to just sort of, you know, turn their back on it and say, OK, you know, there are really horrendous thoughts out there, but the people that are perpetuating them it's a very small minority and they're in their own little echo chamber and they're probably not ever really going to take action on, on a lot of the stuff they're saying. Just leave it alone. Like that's sort of where my head has been prior to reading your book. I, I guess I'm really curious sort of that, that mentality, like why, why do you feel like that's a destructive place to be? Why do you think it's important for all of us as a society to, to shine the spotlight on these people? Well, you know, I think, first of all, it is hard to quantify numbers, you know, when it comes to the white power movement. Um, you know, they're not exactly like lining up to be censused right. on this matter. But, you know, the the chats that I was sort of eavesdropping on had tens of thousands of members wow. collectively, you know, 
it's not as small a group as you might like to think. Um, and certainly, as we've seen over the past five years, there are far more people sympathetic to that sort of view than per, like perhaps you might be comfortable admitting, right. you know, sympathetic to fellow travelers, you know, that at that point you're getting into, you know, quite large numbers. Um, but second of all, you know, I think while, you know, it may be that, so first of all, we have had numerous mass casualty events um, coming out of the far right over the past few years, um, you know, the horrendous murder and um, like um, attack on, on an El Paso Walmart, yep. um, the, you know, um, shooting uh, in a Pittsburgh synagogue, you know, uh, another shooting in a synagogue outside San Diego. Uh, we've had, you know, plots that have been foiled. Um, so, you know, the question is like how many racially and you know ethnically inspired mass casualty events are you prepared to tolerate and right. for me the none so that's part of it you know it doesn't take some huge numerical majority to acquire guns and engage in violence for the purpose of of terror right but then you know even on a more banal everyday level you know the the day-to-day -day activities of the white power movement are to harass and terrify and um, enact sort of um, these petty violence, uh, acts of violence against, you know, their perceived racial enemies. Right. So feminists, people, you know, um, black people, Muslims, Jews, gay people, trans people, you know, really horrifying harassment, fear. And so to me, it's like, it's the same sort of idea of shouldn't we just look away uh, you know, sort of the same issue as like the shouldn't we just let them speak on campus and be like drowned out, you know, by the marketplace of ideas like, you know, you sort of wind up turning a blind eye or, or expressing your apathy towards the people they victimize on a daily basis. Um, and, and I, you know, I happen to be one of them. And so uh, I don't have the luxury of that kind of apathy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I want to ask you about that, too, because even just like in preparing for this interview, like looking up your name on YouTube, I get, you know, two or three legitimate interviews that you've done. And then there's just this whole stream of, you know, all these these white supremacist channels that, you know, I didn't watch any of them, but just sort of looking at the preview, it's pretty clear that these are just sort of ad hominem attacks against you. And it was very hard to find sort of uh, legitimate uh, things that you've said or, you know, speeches you've given, interviews you've given, things like that, because it just got drowned out, at least on the first, you know, couple of pages of YouTube hits with just all this invective. And, you know, I, I wonder just for you, like being a woman on the Internet, being a Jewish woman on the Internet, you, you talked in your book about one of the stories you kind of open with is kind of lurking in one of these forums and posing as somebody else and reading these guys going back and forth about whether or not they would rape you. Like, just, do you do you get immune to that at some point, or does it all hurt? Like, I, I just, I can't imagine being the center of that much focus from a group. Like, walk me through, I guess, what it's like, just, you know, your Twitter mentions, or, you know, Googling yourself, things like that. Well, you know, it becomes very weird. Like, you know, I, I was listening to 
a neo-Nazi podcast the other day um, that was about me, and they spent like 45 minutes like focusing on the size of my fingers and like mm. my how I had messy cuticles, just like very weird hyperfixations on my body. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with like how much misogyny is really kind of a uh, under credited i guess motivating factor and real drive um in these movements but yeah like it is bizarre being the focus of that much sort of concentrated hate yeah i mean i've had like at least two years to kind of adapt to it like i never become completely numb to it at all and there's sometimes especially when i'm feeling a little vulnerable or a little down it con- like, consequently feels worse like right. Kind of depends on how thick my armor is on whatever day but you know i would say it also helps me retain a sense of moral clarity about the whole thing you know the advantage it gives is that i'm never able to sort of i'm never able by virtue of kind of the way they talk about me and to me see white nationalist organizing as sort of this victimless crime or like an abstraction because you know, they talk about me the way they talk about, you know, other racial enemies. They perceive me as a foe to be defeated and to be denigrated. And so I think what that's able to provide for me, you know, it certainly has psychic repercussions. I wouldn't say I'm like the world's most well-adjusted human being and I collect words and I'm kind of agoraphobic, although who isn't during a plague? Um, I think what it allows for me is an exercise of the faculty of empathy. And like, it also allows me never to see studying the white nationalist white power movement to be just purely a curiosity or a collection of like, isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Because I know that everything in this movement leads to violence and to harassment as a hummingbird does to, to nectar. Yeah. And and you touched on it there, too, just the misogyny piece of it. Like that was something that was kind of revealing for me in the book was sort of the this toxic stew of kind of racism. And, and when I say that, I, I, I guess I'm thinking more of kind of white on black racism as opposed to anti-Semitism, which you draw sort of the connection between all of it, that they're all interrelated. Um, but, you know, those those two pieces, racism, anti-Semitism misogyny it just feels like it's all sort of brewed together in this perfect storm right now i wonder if you have a thought on just sort of how we got to this moment where things are just so toxic well i mean i think it's you know it's not just trump i think people have this idea that it started with donald trump and you know sometimes i'll say something like against like the white power movement in public and people will be like oh yeah we got to vote out donald trump and i'm like well it didn't start with him and it won't end with him right you know, this has been around for for decades, for centuries, like, depending on how far back you want to go. I mean, and you take it back on the anti-Semitism front to like the Black Death, which feels, you know, particularly relevant now. But going back to 1348, that, you know, the, the Gentiles were accusing the Jewish people of poisoning their water wells. And that's sort of what led to, to the Black Death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the conspiracy theories are quite old in, 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 in the West. But, you know, um, certainly when it comes to anti-black racism, I mean, that's, that's pretty old as well. Right. Uh, and has been, you know, um, 
I think they all are, they all are intertwined. Um, you know, often misogyny serves as sort of the entry point for people into the white nationalist movement. So it, it's a more socially acceptable form of hatred to hate like feminists. And so a lot of the figures that I call launderers in the book, the sort of YouTube propagandists who make these right-leaning videos that sort of draw people steadily into the far right, start with feminists. And what that does, you know, it, it really has two functions. So it it gives you this class of people that it's okay to hate and harass. And it also posits that a socially progressive orthodoxy, you know, to wit feminism, is what's got you down. You know, it's what's making your life bad is 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 feminists, evil feminists. Uh, and they're, you know, that's the reason for all your discontent. Um, and so once you're there, once you're in this position where, A, there's a group of people that you feel entitled to harass, and B, you have been sort of slickly propagandized into believing that, you know, a a certain segment of socially progressive ideology is what's led you to your current discontent. Um, it's a very, very short slope from there towards, well, what about Black people? What about Jews? So misogyny really greases the way for other forms of hatred. Um, and then within the white nationalist movement itself, misogyny is really one of the sine qua nons of the movement because they're so fixated on the propagation of the white race. And to them, this takes place in the womb of the chaste Aryan submissive woman. Right. Um, they really have this these ossified, antiquated gender roles. And the women in the white nationalist movement, of which there are, you know, numerous, have sort of accepted these roles for themselves and operate as propagandists for that ossified view of gender, which is an interesting... <laughs> It's an interesting area that I unfortunately wasn't able to cover as much as I would have liked in the book because those communities are a bit harder to penetrate as, as an outsider or sort of under a nom de guerre. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what the argument I try to make is that, and, and you know, that you, as you mentioned, like these hatreds are not so easy to disentangle. They all feed one another and kind of a perpetual motion machine of hatred. Yeah, the the launderer concept was really interesting to me and you know, thinking of it as as almost this sort of gateway into this movement and where my mind went right away is, you know, Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or something like that, which, you know, even more mainstream perhaps than, you know, a YouTube video or something like that. Like I feel like that messaging is being brought into people's living rooms across the country every night. <laughs> Do you feel that way as well? Oh, yeah. And um, coincidentally, both of them have mentioned beyond their shows, not particularly flatteringly. Hmm. Uh, I think Laura Ingram called me a terrorist, which wasn't. <laughs> OK. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. And Shay Talia. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, Tucker Carlson is an open white supremacist. Right. That's not an exaggeration or figure of speech. Like, literally, it's quite open and naked the way he does it. I have found that, like, just in my anecdotal experience, when I, like, get featured on Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram, there isn't a huge uptick in, like, digital harassment. Right. Those audiences tend to be pretty offline. With that being said, like, nakedly white nationalist ideals being broadcast, beamed into millions of American homes on a nightly basis 
yes, like that's a pretty terrible thing. And I do talk about the ways in which the mainstream right news and the far right kind of play footsie together. And there is a 4chan to Fox News pipeline for certain, you know, a lot of the producers for these shows are kind of obsessively online and trawling for news, um, just like any other journalist in 2020. It's just that the sources that they use, you know, are 4chan and 8chan and, you know, kind of a lot of what makes it onto Tucker and Laura's shows are kind of these weird online preoccupations of the far which is a funny disconnect with uh, kind of their very offline audiences. Um, But yeah, you're right. I mean, absolutely. Like the worst anti-immigrant, you know, uh, racist bile just being like mainlined by millions of American homeowners or whatever is like pretty fucking terrible. And part of what I mean when I talk about fellow travelers and sympathizers to the white power movement. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw something today on Twitter. I don't have it right in front of me, but just uh, there was something about when people talk about protests on the news, if they attach the adjective black to it, if they say black protesters, there was something about like Republican Fox News viewers were, I don't know, 45 percent. I don't know the figures right in front of me, but 45 percent less likely to be sympathetic if they heard black protesters. Mainline Republicans were call it 30 percent. Democrats that had no effect on like it was just sort of interesting that once you get into that world once that sort of becomes just sort of the background noise of your life you you don't like subconsciously you end up just starting to sort of see the world through that lens it seems yeah so you know when when I set out to write a book exploring the the propaganda and the wages of that propaganda you know I set out to explore how how does this kind of invective shape the world and and clearly it it's shaping the world we live in in major and 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 truly corrosive ways. So, you know, I think that goes back to your earlier question of why not just look away from these like you know wretched folks. It's because they're doing such active, such colossal, such massive scale harm. Right. That to look away is a dereliction. Yeah, you, you touched earlier too on on the gender issues and sort of looking for that sort of submissive wife and and it touches on the incel movement which you talk about uh, as well in the book and these are people that uh, they identify as involuntarily celibate essentially they would be sexually active but are unable to find a partner and you talked about having sort of a brief moment of sympathy for them as as you were sort of in that movement of just that not necessarily their actions but sort of that that feeling of loneliness or feeling unattractive or you know these are things we all go through at different points but that these people, these incels, have taken it to a level at least of violent rhetoric and you know, perhaps even to violence after that. But it's sort of the strange thing to me in that, just in sort of thinking about the profile of, of who these people would be, is that that sense of entitlement or, or feeling owed by women. That like, you know, th- there, there's something that the, I should be getting as as a white man, I guess, in these people's heads. And why am I not getting that? And I, I just wonder sort of like, is that have incels just been with us forever? Or is this a function of, you know, is is there some toxic stew of, you know, the Internet and and, you know, Internet porn and, you know, the Instagram putting your best life forward, just sort of do all those things combined to make incels 
feel worse about themselves and act out? Or is it just, are we more aware of it now because they have a community? That's a multi-part question. So I'll, I'll break it down. Certainly like, and I was thinking about some of the, the emotions that go into inceldom, right? Of feeling I'm so unattractive, I can't get laid. And like, who hasn't, yeah, you're right. Like who hasn't felt that way? I certainly felt the echoes in my own life. But, you know, then you spend time in these spaces and you realize that what they are looking for uh, isn't quite just like getting a date with someone like-minded or wanting to have a sympathetic conversation with a woman. I mean, these are spaces that really, um, you know, the, 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 the deeper I went into incel forums, the more that kind of symp- that natural sympathy eroded because the, these places were factories were essentially two, uh, two emotions like despair and rage. Yeah. Um, there's this incel term like to be black pilled, which is to sort of take the, the necessary truth that there is no hope and, despair is the only truth and you know it was quite disturbing looking in these posts the way people talked about wanting to commit suicide and one user on on a reddit board that's since been banned but was dedicated to insult that i was you know spent a couple of days immersed and said okay i've called out of work tonight's the night i'm going to commit suicide and the responses were all just egging him on like yeah do it wow been in South Valhalla. I mean, there was no like call nine one one. Like, man, you need some help. I mean, it was just like, yeah, you you've taken the black pill. This is the truth. So, you know, it, it's a it's a community that's deeply unhealthy that pushes people towards suicide. But more than that, a second consequence of what incels view as the truth is uh, rage against women, Mis- misogyny so deep, so pervasive, so toxic. It felt really bilious and difficult to to touch you know that was one of the more like psychologically difficult experiences of the book was researching a, a group that that hated women so deeply and like having spent a lot of time on hate sites uh over the past couple of years i have like one surefire way of recognizing hate sites which is that they consistently highlight crime by the like undesirable group right yeah. So just as white nationalist sites were always posting crime by by Jews, by black people, uh, incel forums had whole boards dedicated to crimes by women that like half of the human population is sort of irretrievably degenerate. And the fantasies they expressed were not like of an equal partner to have right. sex with, but like, or even like just like a normal kind of casual sex scenario. Um, but like specifically of sort of young, nubile, submissive, teenage uh, women that they felt entitled to the bodies of. Like it, these were very, un, you know, they wanted like unrealistic fantasies and they, you know, were constantly looking at like anime porn featuring like underage looking women. So it really was like, it, you know, it, it's easy to sort of imagine the incel phenomenon as just like, oh, these poor guys looking for a date and, and sympathize with them in that regard. But then if you look into, you know, the subculture itself, it really is more than that. It's essentially a hate movement against women. And uh, not all the men involved are white. There there were internal polls on one of the, the big incel message boards that I infiltrated that like showed 
you know, it was about half non-white men. Wow. Um, but even so, you know, white nationalists were recruiting on these boards, despite the fact that, like, they were by no means all non-white, just because a group of people who are drawn together by radicalized rage forms a useful recruitment pool for a movement based on radicalized rage. Yeah. And, and, you know, you touch on in the book to sort of the overlap with the video game culture. And I think about that relative to sort of what you said about these these incels, you know, egging people onto suicide and stuff. And like, I, I, I just think about too, like the mass shooting events and sort of, you know, the people are, are live streaming now, you know, a, a camera on top of their gun or on top of their helmet and, you know, almost replicating like a like a first person shooter game. I just sort of wonder, like, it feels like all of these pieces, misogyny and racism, you know, they just all keep overlapping and intersecting in this world. I, I, I'm curious just sort of your take on, on video game culture and what it might do to, you know, predispose people to a certain point of view. Well, I think we've been arguing since Columbine about whether, like, first-person shooters make you more likely to kill. And I I'm actually, I enjoy video games quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, you know, anti-game <laughs> um, at all. I I think the issue is more like, I, you know, when I wrote about video game culture, I was talking about sort of a specific online uh, movement called Gamergate, um, which took place around 2014 and was basically a mass movement to harass women and people of color who, you know, wanted to call themselves gamers who were involved in video game production or journalism or, you know, anything even tangentially related to video games. So, And what that was was about the idea that the identity of a gamer was a white man and that, like, any incursion into that identity by people who weren't white men was an affront and uh, an act of theft. So that was, you know, 2014. And in many ways, it presaged both in terms of like harassment tactics and how widespread it became. And also, you know, a lot of the figures who were prominent in Gamergate later became prominent in the far right. Like it, it wasn't so much about video games themselves, but about the idea that white men are entitled to uh, a provenance uh, of public property and uh, and that anyone, you know, who didn't fit that description, who, you know, was trying to enjoy something that's brought so many people joy was, was uh, some sort of evil encroacher that had to be harassed often to the point of, you know, real danger and right. being in their homes. And so um, I don't know about first person shooters leading people to, to kill. Um, certainly, though, one incident was quite disturbing to me that I wrote about, about um, a murderer uh, in Halle, Germany, who set out to perform, uh, like to perpetrate a massacre in a synagogue on Yom Kippur, was largely unsuccessful because he had like homemade his own guns, right. uh, but did kill, you know, several passersby, um, you know, and a man like then went to a kebab shop and just killed randomly there you know uh and he 
wrote this manifesto that laid out like different sort of video game style achievements, like, you know, with cute little names, but it was like, you know, kill a Jewish child, kill a Muslim and a Jew, you know, these were the, the achievements. Um, so I, I don't know if like video games themselves are to blame, but I think some of the toxic culture around white men believing that they can claim, you know, whole swaths of intellectual property or creative output as their own yeah. uh, is certainly something not to be countenanced and, and which has created a lot of tremendous pain for a lot of real people. Yeah, for sure. And and I don't necessarily mean to suggest a, a direct link there. I, I agree with you that that argument has been made since Columbine and, you know, felt felt at the edge of bullshit there. But but I, I feel like maybe the bigger piece and this for me, you know, I, I'm not a huge gamer like the stuff I grew up with was, you know, Super Mario Brothers and that kind of stuff, you know, really, really simple things. But like the ability to sort of play over the Internet and be sort of shit talking with each other as you're going around and shooting. Like, I, I just wonder if that, that casualness leads to, you know, just, it becomes a slippery slope, I guess, towards misogyny, towards racism, towards anti-Semitism, that sort of thing, perhaps. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was, you know, eavesdropping on, on these white nationalist chats um, mostly without participating, you know, the the personas I created to to participate in some subcultures were like far outstripped by just the sheer amount of time I spent hanging out, basically just listening and 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 watching to, like what they were talking about. And so much of it was this acrid form of humor. You know, it was about laughing at pictures of people mutilated and dying. It was about constantly evoking the Holocaust, constantly evoking you know, murders of black people, you know, and, and, and the deaths of black people as, as loci of humor, making everything a joke. And that to me is really part of a very deliberate strategy of dehumanization. Once you stop seeing the deaths of your quote unquote race enemies as the deaths of human people, once you stop seeing their lives as human lives, then you're in the place where you're vulnerable to these calls for terror and for violence because you don't see your opponents as fully human right. um, at all. And so that's, I think, the, the real danger here. And, and that's what leads people to live stream their murders, you know, is, is they've been conditioned by this culture of, of rampant dehumanization of the other um, that that I saw, you know, every day in these far right chats. And, you know, it's very deliberate. It's very thoroughgoing. You know, it takes a while for people to move from kind of more natural human impulses of seeing other human beings as human um, into sort of having that natural regard stripped away by propaganda and by, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but by stochastic terror, which is... Sure, yeah. Yeah, the ambient encouragement to violence. And that's just like the default pose of so many of the chats that I was infiltrating is just like it's it's just a stochastic terror factory. And, you know, back to your question of how widespread is this movement? Well, it only takes one person to be tipped over the edge by, you know, this bombardment of stochastic terror to go ahead and enact something. You know, it takes one person, one gun 
to put whole communities in in grief and fear. And so I think while the the numbers might be bigger than than you suspect, you know, it doesn't take that large a number to create incalculable oceans of grief. Yeah. There's this, uh, you write about the relationship with religion to both Christian symbolism, but also a lot of pagan symbolism. And you mentioned the term Valhalla before, this kind of uh, Nordic Viking heaven, and the idea in the white supremacist movement that this is a place that you go when you commit an act of race violence. When I read that, it made me think of Al-Qaeda and sort of their propaganda. I just wonder sort of hate across different cultures. (laughs) Like, is... Is there a common thread to this, whether it's, you know, hating the West or hating Jewish people or, you know, whatever form the hate takes? Are there certain consistencies that that people have figured out to to sort of get people to act on their behalf? Well, I'm not an expert in Islamic terror, but I mean, sure, like exploiting anger, exploiting fear of the other you know, exploiting dissatisfaction um, in order to drive violence. These are kind of universal strategies. And I think they are sort of cross-cultural in that sense. Um, I will say that our whole law enforcement apparatus since 9-11 has been keyed toward Islamism, geared toward Islamism, that Muslim communities, you know, like innocent, normal people have faced such extraordinary degrees of surveillance, of criminalization, when you have the white power movement, you know, among white Americans, that's, you know, the biggest, um, as as um, Kathleen Ballou, uh, who is the author of the tremendously uh, edifying book, Bring the War Home, about um, the role of sort of paramilitary culture in the white power movement in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Like she talks about how the biggest mass casualty event in the United States between Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the Oklahoma City bombing, Mm. um, which was, you know, in in 1995 by Timothy McVeigh. That killed 168 people. And that was a direct offshoot of the white power movement. People often construe McVeigh as a lone wolf. He wasn't. He was an active part of the white power movement, supported by it financially and intellectually. It's like we we have our our image of terrorism is so cued towards Muslims. It's pervaded every aspect of our culture and and our security state. And yet, uh, when you look at like who's who has perpetrated these mass casualty events in the United States since nine eleven, um, there have been any number of reports that that show that like the bulk of terror incidents uh, have come from the far right, the extremist right. And so, you know, I think, yes, like there are universal aspects to how you recruit people into violence. But I also think it's time for us to re-examine our definitions of terror, um, re-examine who we see as the face of terror in the United States, because it's a lot, it's a lot more likely to be a white man with a, a, you know, a semi-auto, right? you know, than it is to be a member of the Islamic State at this point. Yeah. And I guess the scary thing for me, just thinking about, you know, where we're headed right now, you know, coming up to Election Day and all, as you say, this this didn't start with Trump, certainly, and, and it won't end either way with him. But 
sort of the the two scenarios that you see right now that you know if if Trump is reelected or you know if Biden wins what does that do to the to this white supremacy movement do you know i guess play that out for me what do you what do you imagine you know january or february might look like next year oh boy uh i i I can't predict the future um so i'll just give a disclaimer there i'm (laughs) very worried about the next few weeks i'm like really like I don't sleep well at the best of times, but I'm like really not sleeping well lately thinking about it. Um, I think so. One of the things uh, I talk about in the book, there's a a whole chapter called getting to the boom and it's about accelerationism. So accelerationism is a philosophy that actually originated on the left, but um, has like a very strong home in the far right. And it's essentially the idea that like social collapse is kind of, a quicker like quickening of the path towards one's political ideals yeah um and uh on the far right this exclusively pretty much expresses itself as let's commit lots of acts of violence to facilitate social collapse and 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 bring about the ethnically cleansed you know white state that you know free of jews free of minorities that we dream of and you know coming up on a very hotly contested election where you have a lot of people with guns who are very likely to be angry at one outcome. And and certainly, you know, what like gives me nightmares is the idea of like a hotly contested, very close outcome, maybe like taking weeks or battling in the courts. Like that's the kind of thing that like leads to real civil unrest. And like you have these people who, who violence is their sort of, hummingbird nectar yeah i mean they've been collecting guns for years with this in mind right yeah and like they talk about you know the boogaloo civil war Two, um you know dreaming of a race war uh very fondly and so i just like i mean what really scares me is the idea of white power violence in a destabilized civic environment you know where things are really unclear and like you know, that people will view this as an opportunity to facilitate the collapse um, that they dream of. I mean, it's very unpleasant. I would so much rather just be, you know, uh, not Cassandra, because Cassandra was right. But like, you know, I would much rather be some like, you know, gloomy prophet of doom who's totally off base. But when I think about the next few weeks, my nightmare scenario is like, you know, a contested election, and violence at polling sites and violence during, you know, a period of sort of anarchic lack of clarity about what's going to happen and just basically the opposite of a peaceful transfer of power. Right. Like in the event of, say, like a Biden landslide, that's really clear. Like in either scenario, these people aren't going to go away. <laughs> the movement has swelled in its ranks, you know, enormously over the past four years. And people who are you know, activated, active members of the white supremacist movement aren't necessarily going to shrink. Like they are, for worse or for worse, a part of our polity. And I think the answer I give to that and sort of the finish of the book is about anti-fascism. You know, I consider myself an anti-fascist. So if you're someone who's been curious about Antifa and who, who, who is that? Well, I am one of them. So let your curiosity be satisfied. But I think (laughs) a lot of what Antifa is 
all of what Antifa is really is 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 sort of reactive, defensive moves against far right organizing. You know, this idea of like we have to protect our communities, and I think uh, history, you know, and this moment demand of us all like to be anti-fascist, to protect our communities against the rise of white power organizing, and to ensure that bigotry and racism and uh, these sort of naked expressions of prejudice have a real social cost. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's where I sort of end the book and um, sorry to not be able to offer more. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, we're, I don't know where we're headed either. None of us know. And it's uh it is definitely a scary period coming up um, short of perhaps a Biden landslide where it's just clear cut that it can't be contested in any way. But you know, part of what you talk about, too, is just sort of both for Antifa and uh, for journalism, the power of of sort of unmasking these people and, you know, shining the spotlight on them. So much of the power they get seems to be through anonymity. And by identifying them, by, you know, putting them out in their community and in front of their employers and things like that, people aren't as willing to be white supremacists when, you know, there's the threat of that or, you know, when it really happens to them. So, um, thank you, I guess, for the work you're doing. And, you know, the book is amazing. And I hope, you know, more people continue to be inspired and just sort of call these people out because it feels like that's really the only way that we can we can get rid of it or at least immobilize it to a point where it's not a significant threat to daily life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incumbent on all of us, you know, and start with your hometown, start with your community. You know, there are like amazing anti-fascists who have organized like huge leaks of basically every major white supremacist message board um, and like discord search your hometown in these databases, like see if there's anyone you recognize, like and see, you know, if their employer knows about it, it's that kind of thing. Like you have to put some skin in the game. You have to be willing to put yourself on the line at least a little bit more than a yard sign. Um, you know, if we're going to put this genie back in the bottle and throw the bottle away, <laughs> I think this is a moment that demands a lot of us. It's a sort of what would you have been doing? Well, it's like what you're doing now. Um, and I hope that people come away from the book with a, a sense of sort of a desire to fight because, you know, damn it, I spent all that time in such horrible places for you. <laughs> uh, um, I, I came out and I told you what it's all about. And, and, and damn it, come fight alongside me because it's it's lonely in the trenches. Let's get trench foot together. <laughs> um, that's my thing. Woo. But yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for your time. This was this was an incredible conversation. And I really enjoyed the book. And, you know, it, as I said, it was enlightening for me. It, it opened my eyes in ways that, uh, you know, in, in some ways made me feel really icky. <laughs> I didn't, you know, didn't necessarily want to have opened. But once you see it, you you can't look away. And as you say, it's on all of us now to, to figure out how to take action. Yeah, I mean, people keep being like, am I going to be traumatized by your book? And I'm like, listen, buddy, you want to talk trauma with me? <laughs> I'm the one who wrote it. You know, um, I had an interview with like the BBC uh, last night and afterwards the interviewer was like, I was shocked by how normal you sound. I can't hear the scars in your voice. 
And I was like, well, okay, um, I'll take it. I <laughs> uh, hope I sound cheerful and positive. And um, um, so just, yeah, just go punch a fucking Nazi in your community. That's, <laughs> that's my message to you, quarantine creative listeners. <laughs> All right, there we go. Talia Levin. Was, uh, was a lot there. There's a lot to think about. But uh, we all play a part in this. And I think about that a lot, honestly. I, like, I've been one of those people for a long time that's thought about the Holocaust and sort of the, you know, the German people that didn't intervene, that just went about living their lives and letting atrocities happen all around them. And I've often wondered sort of what I would do in that situation. And we're in it. As Talia says, we're living it right now. And whatever it is that we're doing in this moment is how we're reacting. So I hope her message resonates with you. I hope it causes you to do some thinking, some more reading, and to take action. And if you follow Talia on Twitter, I mean, she just, I think yesterday or earlier this week, she was unmasking a Marine that uh, had been posting anti-Semitic things towards her. And the Marines tweeted back at her that they're aware of it and are going to deal with it. So it's important, I think, to have people like Talia on the front lines, really diving deep into this stuff. But I think it's important for all of us to recognize harassment, recognize violence, recognize violent rhetoric and report it in every way that we can and think about how our actions affect those people around us. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday of Quarantine Creatives. I hope you come back on Monday for a brand new show. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. So let's chat. Have a great weekend, everyone. Go do your early voting. Get that vote in. Make it count. Stay safe.